Take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations as we continue our study in this great book. We're in Lamentations 3 this morning. And what I want us to do uh, this morning is to, to see two declarations that we must make in order to have a godly lament. There's two declarations. There's two things we need to speak, to speak out loud. And in some sense, I would say, in, in light of this book, there is individual lament with, with, the, with different, uh, different of the poems, but often it is intermixed with a communal lament. And so in some sense, what we read today in this third poem in Lamentations 3 is a call for individual declarations, these two declarations, but also an encouragement and a challenge for God's people together to make these two declarations together. So let's look at the first declaration, and it's this, godly lament proclaims our suffering, our pain, and our sin before God. Godly lament involves proclaiming, declaring our suffering, our pain, our sin before God. You see this in verse 18. This is where we left off last week as Pastor Andrew uh, skillfully worked us through the first part of Lamentations 3. And the poet writes here, So I say, my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. This is an honest declaration to God of, of a believer's experience in the moment. It goes on to say in verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Wormwood was a plant that was bitter, bitter to the taste. The, the, the poet is, is, is signaling to us, God's people, it is appropriate for us to declare uh, openly, together, and individually, bring our suffering, pain, and our sin to God himself. It's not inappropriate to remember that suffering, to, to declare it, to, to, to share that with God, repeatedly even, to bring it before God. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Now, I must say that um, this was not the teaching that I gathered from my growing up as a believer in Jesus Christ. I, was, I came from an old school uh, situation. I mean, my, my family's response to pain was walk it off. Get over it. Stop crying. Stop whining, get back to work, do what you need to do. But that inability to declare your suffering and pain before God, I think that truncates. I think it stifles. I think it, it becomes a barrier to you in restoring your relationship with God if you're not going to honestly declare to God what your particular situation is at any given time. I certainly believe in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. But sometimes, I think, we try to encourage people in the middle of a crisis to say those words too quickly or to say those words and not say the words of pain and lament and sorrow. So lament, the honest proclamation of our suffering and pain and sin before God, is part of the pathway to recover, to be restored, 
to grow in endurance in a broken world. We must take advantage of that. And I think that's what this entire book is about. Individual, communal laments, which are proclaiming to God, which are declaring to God our present suffering, our present pain, our present uh, situation as we are experiencing the brokenness of the world and even our brokenness in that broken world. Yet, while this is all true and good, and some of you need to lament more consistently and more effectively and more honestly, I would say, the book of Lamentation provides another key element for a godly lament, and this is to be the second declaration, is that godly lament proclaims the character of God. And see, while, while, it's, while it's very appropriate to pour out your sorrow, your, 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 your situation, honestly before God, it is also true that in the book of Lamentations, as we enter into this third poem in, in, in Lamentations 3, it is also true that while we share our sorrows honestly before God, we need to declare and proclaim the beauty of God's character in the midst of our suffering. If you think about this poem, we're getting to the middle of the book in this third poem. And what's shocking about this, I think, what's shocking to me as I've had more time to look at it, is that the poet, the person who is probably an eyewitness of the Babylonians coming in, destroying the temple, destroying the city, taking many, many captives into exile... The poet seems to be an eyewitness. He is familiar with what is actually going on. And in some sense, there is nothing circumstantially that points to God and his good character because the situation is so disastrous. And yet in the middle of the poem, while, while the poem in chapters 1 and 2 and the poem in chapter 4 and 5 will all express deep uh, 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 deep, deep sorrow, deep pain, deep disillusionment in light of what is happening in the very middle of the book. Simultaneously, while experiencing the grief, the sorrow, the exile, the destruction of God's people, God's city, God's temple, the poet will then call out and acknowledge and declare and proclaim the very character of God in spite of the fact that he has very little circumstantial evidence to say the things he does say about God. And why does he do that? Does he say, you know, great is thy faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? Is he saying that to God because circumstantially God seems to be blessing God's people? Absolutely not. There's no evidence of God's love. What, what, what the poet is grabbing onto is this is who God is, and the circumstances of my life do not change the reality of who God is. And I will hold on to the true God no matter what my circumstances are like. And that's equally important if you want to have lament be a pathway in your return to God. A.W. Tozer who said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm being honest with myself, sometimes who God is is less important to me than what God is actually doing in my life experientially. In other words, I'm really, really excited about God if he is answering at least some of my prayer requests on my timetable. I'm actually excited about God if my life is going pretty well. But if there's nothing that seems to be going well, I have a hard time holding on to the character of God. And I think what that shows us is that some of us, from time to time, the God in our minds is not the true God. Or the God that we want is not the God revealed to us in the scriptures. And that's what makes this section of lamentation so profound. It's because this believer in Israel seeing God's people completely undone with very little circumstantial evidence at all to see how God is tangibly helping him in the midst of this incredible, disastrous situation among God's people. The poet will then say, but you know what? In spite of everything around me, in spite of my horrific circumstances, I will proclaim you, Lord. I will proclaim what you're like. I will continue to worship you and proclaim the beauty of your character because that's who you are. And therefore, I will praise you. And I think that's the real rub of this chapter for us. Because I think if we were honest with ourselves, we have a real hard time in the midst of trials, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of even dealing with our own sin, we have a hard time holding on to who God actually is. You know, this morning we, we sang, uh, well, we almost didn't sing, but we did sing, You Will Hold Me Fast. And a number of people have talked to me about a, a, a video that's gone viral of Ukrainian, Ukrainian believers singing that song. You will hold me fast. You will hold me fast. And seeing what's happening to their country. And they almost defiantly say, yes, the circumstances here are not good, but you, God, are good. You are who you are, and I will hold on to that no matter what my circumstances are. That's what lamentations, that's what it's trying to get us to come to. So let's take a look at this God. This God that this poet, seeing the destruction of the temple of God, seeing the destruction of God's people, seeing God's people in exile, maybe he had friends and family on the road to Babylon. He has been honest about his lament. He's been honest about the pain, honest about the sorrow, honest about his questions about where is God in all this. But he also says this, which is what you have to get to if you want to have a godly biblical lament. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It's interesting. He's going to call to mind what? Who God is. He's not going to call to mind, oh, oh, the Babylonians have left. No, that's not happening. He's not going to say, oh, the famine is over. He's not going to say that. He's not going to say, oh, the violence is over. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And where is his hope? In God himself plus nothing. 
Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What the writer says here, what this poet, what this eyewitness is of the destruction of God's people in Jerusalem, he's saying, that's true. I bring that lament, but I also, my second declaration is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This steadfast love talks about God's loyal love. It talks about the fact that God's love given to us, God will be faithful to us even if we are unfaithful. He, he will love us. He's, he's not capricious. When he sets his love on his people, it cannot be taken away. And even when he has to discipline us, he is still loving us. He talks about his mercies never come to an end. He's talking about his mercies. He's talking about the fact that, that God delights in alleviating the consequences of sin. God delights in not giving us what we deserve. Because he's a merciful God. And he talks about his faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. You are faithful. We as God's people have not been faithful. But you will be faithful to your promises. He says it. He declares it. In the midst of the greatest crisis to happen to God's people. The people of Israel ever. If you haven't listened to the last two weeks of sermons from Pastor Andrew, you need to do that. Incredible job through Lamentations 2 and the first part of Lamentations 3. But one of the things that, there are two things that Andrew said I think we all need to hear again and again, and it relates to this text as well, is, is that hope is not something you work for. It's a gift given to you by God. And then the other comment was, hope is not something you, you feel so much. Hope is something you proclaim. If you wait until you feel hopeful, you're not going to proclaim a lot of hopefulness because, because, because of this broken world. But in the midst of this great suffering, this believer, this uh, follower of God, when everything has gone wrong, he praises the steadfast love of the Lord. He, uh, he praises the faithfulness of God in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, in spite of God's people's unfaithfulness. God will be faithful. He, 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 he says his mercies, his, his desire to, to not give us what we deserve, to, to, to alleviate the consequences of sin. He's a merciful God. And he cries out and proclaims these realities. That's where we have to get to if we want to lament in a biblical way. We don't have time to turn there, but if you go back to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, I encourage you to read that. All of these qualities of God, his steadfast, loyal love, his faithfulness, his mercy, are also mentioned when God goes up to, brings Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. He's going to give him the Ten Commandments. They're supposed to wait, the people of Israel are supposed to wait at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And of course, Moses is getting the law of God from God to Moses to give to the people. And in those 40 days, what do the people of God do? They worship golden calves. 
And then they get into all kinds of revelry, which probably meant immorality. And of course, Moses starts to come down, sees this disaster. He actually throws the, the, the tablets down. And now God has to redo the tablets, so to speak. And, 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 and God is so angry because he is rightfully angry against all sin. But in Exodus 34, God, in revealing himself again to the people of Israel, talks about, I am a God of loyal love. I am a God of faithfulness. I am a God of mercy. And yes, I will, I will bring judgment to the third and fourth generation, but my mercy and my grace goes to thousands. In other words, it's almost as if God is saying, my mercy is larger. I'm saying this more poetically or, you know, metaphorically, but it, it, his mercy is, 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 is un, unsearchable. It's, 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 it's unfathomable. His mercy overwhelms his righteous indignation at sin because that is at the core of who God is. Now, yes, God is angry with sin, and God is going to bring justice to this world. Yes, he's going to do all of that. But his mercy and his grace and his loyal love dominates his character. Notice what he says in verse 31 of of Lamentations 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. So when we're talking about God, he's, he's got a, yes, he's rightfully opposed to all evil and all sin, but his mercy is bigger than that in some sense. I think some of us look at God as if he's got a hair trigger on judgment to us. One sin, boop, you're zapped. If he's got a hair trigger at all, it's on throwing out mercy throwing out his grace, being faithful even when we're not faithful, being, uh, showing loyal love in spite of the fact that we run after other gods. The situation that this poet is writing about, the destruction of Israel, it's not because Israel had a bad day. They had a bad couple of centuries. He was very gracious for hundreds and hundreds of years until he enacted what he promised he would do. He is a merciful, long-suffering, faithful God. And if we want to have true lament, if we want to lament biblically, while we pour out our honest declarations of our sorrow and our pain and our suffering and our sin, we have to also, by faith, pour out and proclaim the beauty and glory of this God, even when nothing in our life seems to validate because that's who he is. And the reality is, you're never going to get a true understanding of God in, in any other place other than in his word. And when God's people come together in a small group or come together like we are right now, where we declare the beauty and character of God. And it doesn't depend upon our personal circumstances at any moment. It is who he is because this is how he has revealed to us. He has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we don't work for hope. And we don't often feel hope. But we proclaim it. Because it's who he is. And that's where we get true Lament. It's an interesting, uh, go back in, to Lamentations 3. 
When you get to verse 24, it says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. We're told that the Levites who were ministering in the tabernacle and in the temple didn't have an inheritance of land like the rest of the tribes of Israel did when they came into the promised land. Instead, it says the, the Lord is their portion. And now the writer says the Lord is my portion. He says the Lord is all I have. It's what I have. He's everything to me. He is my portion. I, if I have God and nothing else, I have everything that I need. And in almost a very real way, that is true for this writer of the poem. Everything has gone wrong. There is no external obvious blessing that God is pouring out on his people at that time. Yet this poet says... This eyewitness of the destruction of God's people says, you, Lord, are my portion. You are everything to me, and I have you. And I can praise you. Even when everything in the circumstantial part of my life has come completely undone. C.S. Lewis said this, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God So this picture of declaring honestly our pain and sorrow and sin before God and then declaring the beauty and glory of his character. That's the picture we have here. That's what true lament is. That's what godly lament is. That's what biblical lament is. One without the other doesn't really work. If all you're going to do is talk about your pain and suffering and the character of God is absent that, I would say why would you even go to God? with your lament if he isn't this kind of a God. If he's not merciful, if he's, if he's not faithful, if he's not, if he's not all-powerful, and I can't get to that section, but there are verses there in verses 37 to 39, it talks about the sovereignty of God. Why would you go to God with your suffering at all if he's not who he says he is? On the other hand, if all you do is take your, 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 your sufferings and, and you don't have the... the the, the character of God is not also simultaneously what you're lamenting about. Now, where's the hope? Who are you trusting? How do you get through it? If there isn't a God like this, who loves you, who's listening, who's grieved as well, and has the power to work in your life. I think if we were all honest, I think we would all say that when God isn't blessing me enough, if there's not enough answered prayer on my timetable, if he's not alleviating my suffering soon enough or quick enough or in the way I would like it, we have a real hard time proclaiming that God his love is steadfast, his faithfulness is, is, is great, his, his mercy is abundant. Because we have a God in our minds that's not the true God. So how do you do this? Well, you, you, just, you have to proclaim, right? You've got to proclaim it. 
This is one of the reasons why we come together as a church. I don't know why you think you come to church. I guess if you're a, you're a kid, your, your parents force you to come to church. I get paid to come to church. I worry that some of you come out of duty. Well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Or some of you, it's like a checklist. I went to church. Boop. And some of you, I hope not many of you, somehow think that coming to church is going to earn you some brownie points with God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reason we come to church and the reason why it's so important to come to church is because when we are together, when we are together as God's people, and many of us are suffering immensely in all kinds of ways, we proclaim the beauty and glory of God. You sang this earlier, hymn 324, one of my favorite hymns, Be Still My Soul. We, we sang these words together. We said, leave to thy God to order and provide. We declare the sovereignty of God. We said, in every change, he faithful will remain. Be still my soul. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored, be still my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. When we get together, we're not here, we shouldn't be here because of duty. We shouldn't be here because it's checklist. We shouldn't be here because, well, you know, we think we're going to earn something from God. We come together because we live in a broken world. And when we honestly confess our sins and be honest about the brokenness, but then be honest about who God is together, we proclaim the beauty of the character of God which completes our lament. And Sometimes you need to be in a place where you hear other people singing with gusto when your hope and your faith is at a very low ebb. It, it, it saves my soul to hear this church sing. And that's why we come together. That's what the, the poet is trying to do as he brings God's people to this corporate lament. Yes, honesty before God about our situation, but honesty about God, about who he is, who he really is, not the God that floats around in our mind that, that we think is going to solve all my problems immediately. So I want to pray for us. Again, you can't work for this kind of hope. You can't you're not going to feel your way into it, but we've got to proclaim it. We've got to proclaim it together. Because in proclaiming it together, we, in some sense, catechize ourselves to the reality that we live in a broken world, but we have an all-faithful, loyal, loving, merciful God. And that is not dependent on your circumstances. It's revealed to us in his word and we grab hold of it as we proclaim it. And then we begin to live a little more consistently out of that incredible reality. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I know there are people in this room right now and people online who are, have much to lament about. Real trials, real challenges sorrow, grief, the brokenness of the world has been poured out on, him, on them. 
And many of these things have nothing to do with their own personal sin. It's just living in a broken world. Lord, all of us face this broken world and all of us face our own brokenness, which contributes to the need for lament. We are not the people we need to be. We sometimes make our difficult circumstances worse because we don't follow your word. And so, Lord, we come and we are honest about those those situations. We lament, Lord, but at the same time, as you show us in your word, we must lament by proclaiming the character of God, proclaiming the reality of who you are. That no matter what our circumstances are, even when things look bleakest, we still should be able to say, you are faithful. You are a loyal, loving God. Your steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercy is unending. We proclaim that because it's who you are. We proclaim it because it's true about you. And so, Lord, help us to lament by proclaiming the beauty and the character of God. Individually, but together. As we try to hold on to you in the midst of a broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.